You're listening to the Transformative Podcast brought to you by the Research Center for the History of Transformations at the University of Vienna. Welcome to today's Transformative Podcast brought to you by the Research Center for the History of Transformations. My name is Irena Remestvensky. I'm the Managing Director here at DEADSET, and today I'm very happy to welcome Anton Chehovtsov as the guest of this podcast. Anton is the Director of the Center for Democratic Integrity, based here in Vienna. He acts as an expert for the European Platform of Democratic Elections, edits the book series Explorations of the Far Right for the publishing house Ibidem, as well as the open access journal Fascism, the Journal of Comparative Fascist Studies. Anton's last book is titled Tango Noir, Russia and the Western Far Right. It was published by Routledge in 2018. Anton, I am happy to welcome you today in our improvised office studio here at Redset. Thank you for having me, Irena. As an expert on both the, the Eastern European and the Western European right-wing movements, you were in the press a lot lately talking about the Azov Regiment of the Ukrainian Armed Forces. We know that the Azov fighters recently surrendered to the Russian forces after being under siege in the city of Mariupol and defending the Azov-style plant. And according to many Russian but also Western outlets, the regiment has a right-wing leaning ideological side, and many also call it a neo-Nazi group even. I was wondering, what's your take on that? Would you say that Azov has neo-Nazi connections? And if so, how close they are? You see, Azov as a volunteer battalion was formed in May 2014, and at that time there was this connection with the far right. Well, first of all, I must say that in 2014, after the annexation of Crimea, after the start of the Russian-Ukrainian war, uh, Ukraine very quickly realized that it lacked a proper army, it lacked proper defense forces to fight back against the Russian aggression. And around more than 40 volunteer battalions were formed at that time during spring and summer 2014 to help the army to defend Ukraine. Azov was formed in May 2014. There was a very strong connection with the far right because basically the leadership of Azov featured leaders of the Ukrainian far right group called the Patriot of Ukraine. At that time, the battalion also featured other people not necessarily connected to the far-right football hooligans, for example. During the period in 2014-2015, the far-right leadership at the helm of Azov was present. However, in uh, starting from 2016, Azov was transformed into a regiment of the National Guard of Ukraine uh, following orders from the Ministry of the Internal Affairs. It started the process of depoliticization. This process involved the far-right leadership of Azov leaving the regiment and starting their own political project, which called the National Corps. Azov lost much of its ideology that it had. It increasingly became a regular military unit within the National Guard. Now, it's very difficult to talk about Azov because we know that all of them are now in the Russian camps. So let's just 
talk about Azov before the invasion, before they were surrounded in Mariupol. It was a regular unit. It was not a political organization. It would follow orders of the Ukrainian authorities and they would not have any political ambitions. Political ambitions, that's for the national core that was formed by former commanders of Azov. But Azov as such, as the regiment, it doesn't have an ideology. Although it was following orders of the interior ministry, now with the invasion, it was rather the defense ministry that coordinated their activities with Azov. So to sum up, from 2016, it increasingly was depoliticized. And by the start of the invasion of the Russian invasion in February, Azov had already become a regular unit without any ideology. So you mentioned that the leadership has largely been exchanged. Do we have any data on that, on how many of the fighters are new compared to, let's say, 2014-15 to the beginnings? Or are these mostly the same fighters but a new leadership? The Patriot of Ukraine, that was a very small organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe they had dozens of people, but not hundreds. Azov, by the start of the invasion, had over 1,000 people. These are soldiers rather than political activists. According to the Ukrainian law, actually you can't be a party member if you're serving in the army or in the police. As soldiers, they can have various views. We know, of course, that some of them have right-wing views, but they're not following political orders, they're following orders from their commanders. A good soldier is not the one who has politically correct views, it's the one who follows legitimate orders of their commanders. With the Azov, mostly the personnel was almost completely renewed, but it was not connected to the political aspect. It was connected to the fact that many people just, you know, became veterans. Especially when Azov from the battalion was transformed into the regiment, there were more people joining and they would not have any political background. They joined Azov because it was considered one of the most professional military units within the armed forces of Ukraine. Very interesting. If you can tell me very shortly, what do you think of the symbols used by the Azov regiment, the usage of these runes and Wolfsangel? Yes, uh, you see the symbol Wolfshook or Wolfsangel, it was introduced into Ukrainian political context already during the 90s. As a symbol of one party, Ukrainian party, it was introduced with the interpretation of the idea of the nation. This symbol features two letters, I and N, I standing for idea and N standing for the nation. Of course, that was a very subjective interpretation of this symbol, but this was how it was introduced and interpreted by Ukrainian politicians. And I think this is important because the symbols itself do not really matter. What matters is how you interpret them. Communists were using a star, and we know that basically the symbol comes from the esoteric teachings. Uh, It's a pentagram, but we're not talking about the occult or esoteric symbol of the communist star. We're talking about the communist ideology and how they interpreted this symbol. So the same with the Wolfsangel. I completely understand the, the problematic nature of the symbol because of the use of the symbol by the Wehrmacht uh, during the Second World War 
and then by post-war neo-fascist and neo-Nazi organizations. Of course, with the Azov, it is different. Already in 2014, it lost many fighters who sacrificed their lives for the defense of Ukraine. And I think Azov has a legitimate right to interpret this symbol as they see it. And they are not interpreting this symbol with the connection of fascism. They interpret the symbol in relation with the idea of defending Ukraine and defending the Ukrainian nation. So what do you think will, will happen to the Azov fighters now that they have been captured? They have become a symbol of heroic resistance to the Russian aggression. And because of this, the Russians will try to exploit this in their own dealings. Ukraine hopes for the exchange of all the defenders of Mariupol, of the Azov-style steel plant. It's not only Azov, the plant and Mariupol was defended by the Marines, by other units of the National Guard, by border officers even. So it's not only Azov. Because of their statements, video statements, they have become more popular than other military units. And now, as far as I know, it's the Red Cross and the UN that is trying to mediate between Ukraine and Russia concerning all prisoners of war that were captured in Mariupol. But let's see, I don't want to give too much hope, but at the same time, of course, there is hope that they will get back alive and to Ukraine. If we take a step back from looking at Azov and think about the right-wing movements in Ukraine in general before the invasion or shortly before the invasion, how would you describe that landscape? If we look at the political history of Ukraine starting from the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, we will see that the far right in Ukraine has been traditionally very, very weak. In the 90s, the major reasons of this weakness of the far right was that there were several organizations, four major far right parties that competed with each other and essentially they split the electorate. So during the 90s, they had really, really limited successes in getting elected into the Ukrainian parliament. Another reason for this weakness was that they failed to offer any viable ideology to the Ukrainian society. More moderate national democrats, they were much more popular than these ultra-nationalists, especially in the 90s, but also later. The political center of Ukrainian politics was dominated by the immense struggle between the pro-Western national democrats and pro-Russian forces. And this fight was so huge that the marginal parties, such as the far-right parties, had a problem to you know, penetrate that center to become part of any discussion. The center was so big that the margins had no chance. And it's not only about the far-right, it's also about, say, environmentalist parties. Things started to change already in the noughties, in the beginning of the notice in 2006, in 2007, many of the far-right parties just disappeared because they were electorally unsuccessful. One party still participated in the elections, but it's uh, called Svoboda Party or the Freedom Party. For example, in 2017, they would have less than 1% of the uh, electoral support. Things started to change for the far-right, for this Freedom Party uh, in 2012. There was this demand for new faces, and it was Freedom Party and Klitschko's Udar that partly satisfied this demand for new faces. And but this is very important to stress because Freedom Party, it got 10% of the vote 
in 2012. But the support for them, it was not determined by their far-right ideology or far-right program, but just because they were the most radical opposition to the pro-Russian politics and policies. When we look at the Maidan revolution in 2014 and the elections, we will see that with Yanukovych gone, there wasn't much of these open pro-Russian forces left. Already in 2014, the Freedom Party lost more than double of their support. To sum it up, with the pro-Russian politics in Ukraine, as this pro-Russian politics became toxic, there was no need in the far right because they totally lost this monopoly on uh, radical criticism of pro-Russian politics. There is no need for them now. And again, uh, like in the 90s, they have totally failed to offer uh, the Ukrainian society any you know, viable program for development. Because, yes, you can be you know, anti-Putin or anti-Kremlin, but that's it. So what's, what, it's nothing new. You know, the armed forces of Ukraine are doing the same. There, there is no need for these far-right parties, essentially, because they don't offer anything. So it sounds like on the eve of the invasion that the far-right groups were not any of the major forces in Ukraine or did not have that much influence in the Ukrainian society. But yet the dominant narrative from the Russian side is that Ukraine needs to not only be demilitarized but also denazified. Why do you think Russia chose that specific term to frame their military campaign in Ukraine? You see, Russia has accused Ukraine and other countries of resurgent Nazism for many, many years. That has been a recurring narrative of the Russian Federation. And they struggle against fascism as a justification for everything. It's also very important to understand that the interpretation of fascism in Russia is different from the scientific interpretation of fascism. During the Soviet times, Fascism was mostly considered as anti-communism or anti-Sovietism. And there is research also showing that in the Soviet Union, fascism was also interpreted as specifically anti-Russian sentiment. And this is connected to the manipulative translations of, the, of Hitler's Mein Kampf. When it was translated into Russian, that was a manipulative translation. They shortened the text in order to show that fascism was mostly about killing Russians rather than the Jews. So already then they had this very weird understanding of fascism. After the fall of the Soviet Union, this interpretation of fascism was mostly about you know, fascism equals anti-Russian sentiment. And as we know, in summer 2021, Putin wrote this article about Ukraine, really weird historical analysis, But the insistence of Putin that Ukraine was anti-Russia, if it is anti-Russia, it is almost automatically fascist or neo-Nazi. This is how this interpretation works. So Ukraine as such, it doesn't matter what ideology it has, what political regime it has, because Ukraine positions itself as a nation that is separate from Russia, it is then automatically anti-Russia and by extension it is fascist. So the idea of denazification, it has nothing to do with actual Nazis or with far-right forces. Denazification essentially is the euphemism for the you know, genocidal intentions of the Russian Federation. This is about the destruction of the Ukrainian state. This is about the destruction of the Ukrainian nation. Denazification basically means de-Ukrainization. You know. And as an expert on, on fascism, how would you describe the Russian 
regime itself, because of course there are those opposing voices who say Russia is an authoritarian regime, and there are also even people saying that Putin regime itself is a fascist regime. You know, especially at the moment when the whole world is watching the horrendous war crimes happening on the Ukrainian territory. Would you, as a scholar, call the Russian, the Putinist regime, a fascist regime? Absolutely not. In the recent book that I published, the Russia and the Western Far Right, I called Putin's regime right-wing authoritarian. And of course, we see these characteristics of right-wing authoritarianism. But fascism is, first and foremost, it's a revolutionary ideology. In the beginning of the 20th century, three major ideologies that represented three major visions of modernity, those were liberalism, communism, and fascism. Communism and fascism were revolutionary ideologies. Fascism wanted to create a new anthropological reality, you know, new era. It was a reformist ideology as well. Obviously, it was not a liberal reformist, but it was, you know, fascist reformist. This also explains why so many avant-garde writers and cultural activists became part of fascism because they saw this, you know, visionary, almost like a new age narratives, discourse in that. Putin's regime is anti-revolutionary. It despises all the reform. It was critical of all the revolutionary changes around and around Russia. It has always been against any revolutionary changes in Russia itself. Another thing is that fascists would politicize society. To build a totalitarian regime, you have to politicize every individual so they would participate in the building of this new order, in the creation of the new man. But Putin's regime is depoliticizing Russians. We saw it in many cases where Putin's regime would try to tell to people, you don't need to be interested in politics. You just need to support the ruling party and that's it. Don't think about politics. Don't participate in political movements and political organizations. You can only participate what we give you to support, but not to think for yourself. This is, this is completely different from the fascist politicization and fascist mobilization. So it is definitely right-wing. It's not left-wing, it's not for the equality, that's for sure. It's not totalitarian because of the absence of politicization of the society. An interesting point is that the use of this letter Z that became the symbol of the Russian aggression against Ukraine, all this fascination and obsession with this letter, it comes from the Russian population rather than from the state. In my opinion, and what I see, the Russian state are even trying to somehow control this politicization, not to, not to give people more mobilization because it can be dangerous for them. If, if the people are politicized, then they start their own political initiatives. And this is something that the Kremlin tries to avoid. There is this attempt to limit, somehow limit this mobilization related to the war. You kind of already answered my last question where I wanted to hear more about the ideology of the Russian population as compared to the ideology of the regime. Many people truly don't know what's happening there and they're not interested in politics. And so if you still want to say something about how much ideology is there for the population as itself and whether the population supports the Russian invasion from any kind of ideological stance. You see overwhelming support of the Russian population for the invasion, for this so-called special operation. But I don't think that the Russian population is driven by any ideology, by anything that can be used with this, you know, ism ending. What drives them, I think, is this very hateful sentiment towards Ukrainians. Uh, that is for sure. 
You know that in Russia, Ukrainians were very often considered to be of a lower category of people. Even in the cultural production of the Russian Federation, after the Soviet Union, Ukrainians were very often described as village people like who don't know anything. There was a lot of also dehumanization of Ukrainians in Russia. For the Russians, it is unbearable in my opinion, to see that Ukraine may be a successful European country while they live in poor societies. But especially those people who don't live in urban centers such as Moscow or St. Petersburg or Novosibirsk, they, they are actually quite poor. And we heard stories from now from this Russian invasion that Russian soldiers and officers, they were surprised by the level of life that Ukraine had, that they would have real roads in villages while they would lack the same in those parts of Russia where they come from. It must be understood that the overwhelming majority of soldiers and officers that take part in this invasion, they're coming from very poor areas. And this also explains their hate, their anger, their destructive behavior on the Ukrainian soil. They really hate Ukraine for being better off than they are. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to the transformative podcast produced by Red Set in Vienna. Oh, 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 o